While I prefer to ride powder whenever I go snowboarding, I've always admired the snowboarders who spend their time in the terrain park. It's an endless playground often filled with features like a half pipe, rails, boxes, and jumps. This version of snowboarding, referred to as park, looks totally thrilling and also a little terrifying. For snowboarder Nirvana Ortenez, the park is where she feels most at home. As a former pro park writer who was once sponsored by Solomon, Nirvana has also been a change maker in the sport. Early on, Nirvana was one of the original members of Jetpack 5000, a group of women who empowered other female snowboarders through film. More recently, Nirvana co-founded Soy Sauce Nation, a community for Asian snowboarders. Throughout her career, Nirvana has been a leader, paving the way with fun and audacity. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living, an REI Co-op Studios production. Nirvana Ortenez, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm excited because this is the first like in-person interview I've gotten to do for a while. Yeah, it's I mean, I love I love being able to come in person and like meet people and not do it over Zoom. Like, that's great. It's so nice. Um, I love that you went to my high school. I didn't know this, but that's so awesome. We have a lot of uh, shared commonalities then because we both went to La Jolla High. Yep. We're, we're, we're Vikings. Vikings. Go Vikings. <laughs> How did you find surfing and snowboarding? Um, a lot of that comes back to family. My dad grew up surfing and he got me into surfing pretty young or just like love of the ocean. We would just go and hang out at the beach. We'd go snorkeling. And then uh, my brother was a little bit too young to kind of surf. So my dad and I would go and do that while my mom like hung out on the beach with my brother. And yeah, we just went. I think I was about like sixth grade but I had always gone boogie boarding with him and then around sixth grade I was just like okay I want to I want to do this I want to go surfing and he like went out with me like every day or any day that I wanted to go oh that's awesome yeah that's and, a cool dad yeah and that was like around the same time that we started snowboarding too because since my mom didn't go surfing she's getting better at swimming but she didn't know how to swim back then and so we didn't have like a family activity to do together. So then once my brother was old enough, he was around five and I think I was around 11. He's like, why don't we try snowboarding together? And Snow Summit is relatively close. And yeah, we just one weekend, like I feel like around Christmas, you just packed us all up and we went up to Snow Summit and stayed at kind of a sketchy cabin that like, back in the internet days didn't have, you know, photos look all nice and stuff, but once we got there, it was like run down and it was really, really funny. Like we were like, this is not what we were expecting, but we want to snowboard and had a couple lessons and my mom loved it. And we bought a season pass and went up every weekend since. And I read that your mom's this incredible yogi has a huge following on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. She puts she puts all of us to shame, huh? But tell me that real quick. Yeah, she um so she just did that as a side hustle. You know, she had a normal job and then just liked Instagram, likes getting creative, and then it caught on and she was sponsored by Aloe Yoga for a minute. And yeah, she she was just doing that for fun. Wow. And what about your dad? What does he do? My dad is a, he's a jujitsu instructor. So really, really uh, everyone's super active. 
Did you grow up doing martial arts and yoga? Um, yes, I was exposed to yoga like pretty young. And then um, I did Aikido before snowboarding. Aikido is a type of martial arts that Christine talked to me about it. Yeah, yeah. It's Japanese origins and it's basically taking your opponent's energy and redirecting it. That's kind of like a beautiful thing to do in life too sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it was, I realized like a lot of things in snowboarding, especially too, it taught me how to fall like metaphorically and physically. Like I, I knew how to, if I was trying something new or at a spot and with like higher consequences, like I realized that I was able to avoid a lot of like really gnarly injury because I knew how to fall. How did you get into park of all things? Yeah, it's not. I realize it's not people's first choice <laughs> when they're yeah. trying to come learn how to snowboard. But um, growing up at, at Big Bear and Mountain High, um, the mountain is all park. And back then they used to have a lot of events. So like competitions every weekend. It was like popping off. I look back on those days and it was like there was something every weekend yep. at every mountain almost or what it felt like. So how did you not get scared to fall? Well, it was really funny because the I didn't know how to ride park when I was snowboarding. It was just like we would show up, there would be all these other kids, and we just wanted to be amongst it, I guess, and just be part of that community. So even though I couldn't I didn't know how to like get onto a rail, I would learn at the contest like how to side approach a rail and I'd bang into the rail over and over again until one day I was able to ollie. And it was kind of not the best way to learn, but it, it was so much fun. So I'm curious for you, you could have chosen surfing, you chose snowboarding. Like, how does snowboarding make you feel? And and why snowboarding kind of over surfing? It, I kind of like revisit that personally, too. Like, I made the conscious decision to choose snowboarding. There's a certain aspect to it where it's like you, you roll up to the mountain, you see your friends and you have a community, but then you go back to kind of your double life when I would come back down here and go surf for school and all of that. But I feel like I chose snowboarding because I felt like a sense of belonging and I don't know that challenging, it just challenged me in a way that surfing didn't at the time. I don't know. There was a lot more opportunity at the time growing up and I just saw myself being able to to make something happen. There was a lot more opportunity, I feel like, back then for women snowboarding. Mm -hmm. It seems like there were some big female names that had gone on to do some great things yeah. by 2009. Yeah. I think, you know, snowboarding is more, it's a younger sport than surfing. I think there was a lot of attitude that comes with it. You know, the rebel against the authorities and punk rock and it, it had that like newness to it and then also the fact that there was females present too and they were also in that fold and running with the crowd and there wasn't this kind of machismo type attitude that I feel like maybe surfing might have still kind of has I just think there's a lot more openness and opportunity in snowboarding and the attitude is a lot more open yeah, it's interesting. When I paddle out, I'm still often the only woman, at least in, in my little break. And snowboarding, there's a lot of women. Yeah. And it didn't always used to be like that. No. But it used to be like one girl, uh, opportunities for sponsorship. That 
it's different now. Like back then it used to be, oh, I'm the only one. They would only have their token girl and all of that. But now I think that there's just a whole new wave and also like people that are in these higher up positions that see that change. When Nirvana was breaking into the industry, she had to make her own seat at the table. After graduating from high school, she made the choice to attend community college and put all of her energy into snowboarding. She'd already been competing at a pretty high level during high school. It was at these competitions that she learned about summer snowboarding. As soon as she graduated, she headed to a camp called High Cascade on Mount Hood in Oregon, where you can ski and snowboard all year round. High Cascade had gigs that gave athletes access to the mountain if they helped out with jobs around camp. These spots were hard to get, but it was an opportunity to spend more time riding. I was listening to you on the Bombhole podcast, and it sounds like you did something called dish to ride, which sounds so fun. So I'm guessing you've washed dishes and that gave you a chance to ride. Right. Yeah. So this was super informal, right? Like Totally underground. Probably wouldn't be allowed today, but yeah, <laughs> amazing. Would not be allowed today. But um, it basically, I was like, okay, how do I get a job at one of these camps? And I had heard about another thing called dig to ride where you would help the people who set up the park. And then I had emailed whoever was the camp director at that time about it. And he was so nice enough to to respond to me being like, this is an informal thing. Thanks for reaching out. But you kind of have to be here in order to get one of these spots. And I was like, okay, I have to insert myself in the situation to get this opportunity. And I had a couple friends that worked in the kitchen and they said, okay, we have a spot open for a dish to ride this week. Can you be here? It starts at shift starts at 545 and your shift, it goes till nine. And then you have, you have to get yourself to the mountain and all of that, but you would have access to the park. And that's kind of like a foot in the door, you know, like you, a lot of the times with any industry, but in snowboarding in particular, it's like you have to insert yourself into the situation because people aren't just going to pluck you out of obscurity to and hand you a ticket and, and, and say, we want you. I actually think these programs are really cool. Like to let people wash dishes and, you know, have a place to stay for a chance to ride. Like I think they do, do that at Alta Utah. High Cascades, its own thing. It's like this summer camp and you have adults working there too, which yeah. sounds really fun. Yeah. The whole, the whole draw is that you have like in what other industry or sport are you going to have like your favorite snowboarder or like, is there a chance where you have your favorite baseball player like at this camp, working at this camp that you could interact with? No, like the it's super unique where at the time, like in order to ride the park, you had to work there. So talk to me about the culture and camaraderie that came out of a place like this and what it did for you. So when I first got a job there, I could count on both my hands how many women worked at the camp. There was less than 10 of us out of a, I don't know, 80 to 90 staff. Wow. Right. So you have the super concentrated amount of girls and you're all there to snowboard. And that introduced me to like my current you know, friend group and 
all the people I know my whole life is like, can be connected back to camp. So the culture is really strong, it sounds like, and you spend a lot of time together. Yeah. Yep. You're, it's a concentrated amount of time. It's unreal, really, because you're here in this one spot where there's snow and you're there for your living, breathing, working together for two to three months. At the time, there were these recaps, um, these like session recaps. And those were like really coveted to be in one of those videos. And they would be featuring, you know, the workers, the like pros at the time or up and coming snowboarders. And my girlfriends and I, we noticed, you know, and I, I could, I was getting better at snowboarding too. But at the time we're like, there's like no girls in any of these videos. And the recap videos. And the recap videos. Yeah. And like at the time, one of my friends, she was, she was doing frontside 360s onto like the tallest rail there is the Loon Mountain Rail. And she was doing this crazy tricks onto it and no one was filming her. And that was kind of the turning point where I realized like you need to talk to the people who are filming. Like, how does this work? You have to break down the situation and be like, OK, do I have enough confidence to be like, hey, film me. And that was like a huge learning point in my career. And I think in all of the girls career where we were like, OK, if we want to be included, we have to we have to communicate that and then we have to like show up. But um, <laughs> it was really funny because at the time, the marketing manager sat down all the audiovisual guys, the filmers and photographers, and he was like, 10 percent of your video has to have a girl in it. And it went so badly. <laughs> like if you tell people that they have to do something, they're not going to want to do it. And so that made it a little bit awkward, but ultimately like worked in our favor because what we ended up doing was doing it ourselves. Nirvana and her friends formed a collective called Jetpack 5000. The group became a welcoming community for women to hang out, push each other and snowboard together. They started making their own film reels featuring women snowboarders and other friends. The films gained traction and Nirvana and her friends quickly became content creators. How did you get these films funded? Um, well, it was out of our own pockets. So it's like we all had job, you know, I had a job and something that I, I don't know if I've shared before, but it's when we were deep in it and like filming and making these things. And I was in my snowboarding career. I actually made the decision. This was when I was living in Utah and I made the decision to go back to school. And I went to the University of Utah and I, you know, took out student loans. And that's what funded my snowboarding career, essentially, like living scrappily and using the money that I got from my student loans to like make it happen. And I don't think a lot of people realize that like only a, a certain percentage of people actually make a solid living only off of snowboarding. I appreciate you being honest about that because I think there is this misconception that you can be a pro snowboarder and your life is paid for and you get like a pass. You know, you might get a pass in the mountain and you might get some gear. But beyond that, it's really hard to get paid. It's so hard to be a professional snowboarder. It's just it's not like a thing that people totally pay for. Right. And it's a seasonal sport, too. Yeah. So that's like another another thing to think about is like 
a lot of pros that you see out there. And I, I know this is a thing for skateboarding, but it's like a, a lot of people have full-time jobs where they have a side hustle and that's the reality of it. What came out of these videos? What did it do for you? Like, did yeah. people write in? Did it's, a, it it's actually launch? really cool to see where everyone is, you know, like five, six years later. Um, it really like shaped us into who we are. So more than anything, it gave you the skills to persevere no matter what, be resourceful. Did people write to you guys when they saw these films? It's funny because now a lot of the younger girls that are that are in it now, I say younger, everyone's younger in my eyes <laughs> nowadays, but they they have told me in the past that they watched the Jetpack videos and they're like, that was the coolest stuff I've ever seen. Like we hadn't seen women snowboarding like that before then and because at the time there were there were other women snowboarding but it, maybe it was like a different style got it you're they're mostly doing big mountain and you guys are mostly doing park right that or just like the way that the creative aspect of it mm. was presented and for what us, did you do we were trying to essentially hold ourselves to the high standard so like tricks that weren't clean wouldn't make the cut like spots that have already been done like wouldn't make the cut we just basically had to think about the history and like make sure we used our resources that we knew. And so I would say it was people would view it and it it ended up being something that younger girls could look forward to or like realize that that was there for them as well. And it didn't have to be just competing because that's a lot a lot of people think nowadays too it's like oh i want to be a pro or i want to be an athlete but i have to compete and that's not the case like you can go this other route and make films with your friends and like make content with your friends and make stories essentially you know that's storytelling Making snowboard films with her crew taught Nirvana a lot about creativity, drive, and opportunities for representation. In a lot of ways, Jetpack 5000 prepared her to build Soy Sauce Nation, an online community for Asian snowboarders that holds in-person events. When we come back, Nirvana talks about being one of the only Filipino kids in high school and on the mountain, and she tells us how she met her Soy Sauce Nation co-founder, Andrew Kelly. Nirvana Ortenez is an incredibly talented snowboarder, surfer, and community leader. She was often the only Asian woman on the mountain or at snowboard events. But all that changed when she met Andrew Kelly, also known as AK, who quickly became her friend and eventually her co-founder. Okay, let's talk about Soy Sauce Nation. It's such a wonderful catchy name and what you're doing is so cool. How did Soy Sauce Nation come about? Yeah. So I'm one of the co-founders. My partner is Andrew Kelly or AK. And we met at High Cascade. And yeah, it started off with a, an anecdote where he got up in front of everyone uh, during one of our meetings where we were all introducing ourselves. And he was saying how he was the only Asian kid, like usually on the mountain. And someone was sitting right in front of me when he said that. And I 
pushed my head to the side and we made eye contact and uh, he was like the look on his face he was like oh my gosh I didn't see her and we connected right after that and we're we're really good friends so you said your your mom was Filipino mm-hmm. is your dad Filipino yep so you're full Filipino mm-hmm. so what was it like being one of the only Filipinos in high school and then you know in snowboarding um that was something that I didn't realize was I don't know how to put it in the words but the profound identity of being Asian and being different um, didn't really hit me until I was an adult. Like I knew that we were different. My parents did a really good job with celebrating our differences versus seeing it as like something bad. So I was always really proud of like being different. Like I was totally the kid that brought sushi to elementary school and like I wore the craziest clothing because it was all outfits from the Philippines. But um, I think that was a really big thing for me to learn in my adulthood was that sometimes people don't have that same experience and it might affect them negatively. So being one of, I think it was 3% Filipino in La Jolla High, and we always had like a sense of bonding for that, but like we all just kind of moved through it in our own individual way. I look back at that time and it's like we had allies and had each other's back but I didn't really face maybe I just internalized a lot of that maybe like underlying microaggressions and potential racism that would be viewed as racism now right like I think I just kind of compartmentalized that but then getting older kind of experiencing more you realize that it's like it's bad and it's wrong and you shouldn't have to put up with that. And a lot of the times, like when I would speak out against it or like I've only, I got vocal about it in my twenties, but it took me forever to get there. Right. What happened? I was just like gradually over time. I think a a lot of the more recent things with like social upheaval and you know stop Asian hate and it was really important like that was another really big catalyst for us to have this event too was there was a lot of like hate out there in the world and this was like a safe space that people could look forward to but I, I think it kind of just bubbled over one day I think I was sick lying on the couch and I was like you know what I have not seen any like representation in the outdoor industry there's all you know the same looking people and there's no diversity and like why is it like this and how do we change it and I think I made an Instagram post about it and it got a lot of traction and I was like okay I'm not alone in the way I feel about this okay so you and Andrew you gave him the look you're like I'm you're not the only Asian kid (laughs) hello (laughs) then how did soy sauce nation come to be like right after that yeah, so we started we started talking. One of his friends actually had this thing called Word Sauce Nation and then AK was like, "Oh, yeah, some something about Soy Sauce Nation and like it was a twist on that and it just stuck." And then we created an Instagram because Instagram was in its like early stages at that point and we dedicated that page to featuring Asians in action sports. 
What was the response? It was pretty incredible. People started catching on. We made stickers. People love soy sauce, right? Like the bottles were super, people would see that on your board and be like, what's this? Like, he made a really cool logo. Yeah, yeah. AK made a, he had a really awesome logo. And then, so you got a lot of feedback on Instagram. Like what did people write to you? They were like, oh, this is so cool. Where can I get a st-? It was all about the sticker at first. It was like, where can I get stickers? But then it turned into people would hit us up and be like, oh, this is so cool. Like I live here in some like X like town and I'm like the only Asian person here. And so this really is cool to see other Asian people snowboarding or skateboarding. And and then it turned in from there, it turned into like, oh, I'm going to be visiting um, like Mammoth. Does anyone have like a, a couch to sleep on? And people started exchanging numbers and connecting and it just snowballed from there. How has Soy Sauce Nation evolved over the last decade? It's been a roller coaster, but in the best way possible. So we started doing events or a, an annual event. So we do an event every year. This coming March will be our third year. It's called the Soy Sauce Nation Stir Fry. Great name. We wanted it to be something that was uh, food related because that's so important in Asian culture and culture in general, right? And Stir Fry was perfect because it's like different ingredients, different people, like a safe space, right? It's a three-day event. The first two days are invite only, and then the third day is open to the public. And yeah, it's a it's a private park. You get to snowboard, you get to meet other people, and we just want to keep growing at a sustainable pace, though, because it's really easy to do too much and get overwhelmed. We we're doing this because we want to and the passion for it, but we don't want to get things too out of hand, right? If you watch some of the Soy Sauce Nation recap videos, they're just fun. And it seems like joy is just without saying it or like being overt about it or it's not necessarily in your mission statement. But it seems like it's an integral part of Soy Sauce Nation and the brand. Yeah, just having fun, just having fun with each other and making connections and making new friends and meeting people. Like that's another thing like that snowboarding has given me is just all of those things like getting to the chance to meet people from different, different places. What do you hope change in the action and outdoor sports industry looks like? I think that people continuing to advocate for, you know, underrepresented groups, making noise, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Like, until we do see a substantial change, it's like you, there has to be groups like this to to make people feel welcomed and to continue that work. You know, the culture of snowboarding is really unique. Can you talk to me about that? It's so hard to put into words. Try. It's, it's, I know kind you of, <laughs> it's like the one thing that comes up in my mind is like group love. You have such strong feelings for like the people that are also there for the same reason and you just want to keep moving through life together and like doing awesome things like so many cool things have been born from my personal friend group as well as like people from afar it's kind of like that I don't want to say hodgepodge but just like you get so many different people coming from so many different walks of life like sure you get people who are 
have a little bit more resources, but like there's this whole other side of the coin where people want to be there and they'll do anything they can to like stay in it and stay in the community. So I don't know, it's super special. The snowboarding community is a tight-knit, awesome community, and Nirvana is only making it better. From creating more women's snowboarding content to co-founding Soy Sauce Nation, Nirvana is all about making everyone feel included and inspired on the slopes. Nirvana Ortenez, thank you so much for coming to talk with me in person. I loved it. I had such a blast, and I'm so excited to see what comes next for you. You can follow Nirvana on Instagram at Nirvana Ortenez. That's N-I-R-V-A-N-A-O-R-T-A-N-E-Z. You can also check out Soy Sauce Nation on Instagram to learn more about this year's stir fry, which is happening at the end of March in Tahoe. When I talked to Nirvana, she said they were also thinking about an East Coast stir fry event. I'm sure they'll be posting details on social media soon. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, produced by Annie Fassler, Sylvia Thomas, and Sam Piers Nitzberg of Puddle Creative, and our senior producer is Jenny Barber. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you follow this show, when you rate it, and when you write a review wherever you listen. And remember... Some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.